Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Straight to business today, my first guest was Taoiseach, leader of Fine Gael, held a number of ministerial portfolios in government in his time, was EU ambassador to the USA and served and represented Meath as a TD for 35 years. John Bruton joins me today to talk about his new book, Faith in Politics. John Bruton, talk about walking into the eye of a storm. I'm glad to see you. That's the first thing I have to say. Thank you for joining me again. Thank you very much. Well, 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 did you see last night? What do you make of it? I I was horrified and also very sad uh, to even a 12-year-old child knows that if you're elected to a public office, you cannot contemplate using that for your private benefit. You're rewarded in a regular way for being there. You get your expenses or your salary or whatever it may be, but you cannot use your public responsibilities for a private benefit. Even a 12-year-old knows that. Um, certainly if they've got a good education. And uh, the fact that people who are, you know, very experienced, uh, would seemed to just neglect that, shows, to, to my mind, a failure of ethics. It's not just a failure of law. We do need stronger laws and have ideas about how you might strengthen the laws. But at the bottom of it, you need people with a sense of ethics, a sense, an understanding of right and wrong. And I think that's something that people need to be sort of constantly re-educated about. I'm involved marginally with a company which is in the pharmaceutical area where they have regular sort of ethics rebriefings for their own staff posing sort of hypothetical situations how would you react in this situation or that situation so that people are constantly on the qui vive to the possibility that they might make a decision that was unethical. Uh, it seems to me that we need a, you know, an ethical renewal as well as a legal renewal of, pol- of politics in Ireland. And we need to put in place systems, uh, not just legal, but also you know, uh, ethical, uh, re- ethical re-examinations of conscience, so to speak. OK, so wh- what are your um, thoughts? You said your thoughts around this. We heard from the guy standards in public office last night what he had to say. We heard representatives of local politicians saying the form is what cumbers them to fill out. Hey, John, you're right. If you're 12 years of age, you'll know how to fill out a form as well. What, what, what are your thoughts around it? How can this be tightened up? Well, there are two issues here. There's the issue of the forms 
Uh, and nobody's suggesting, I think, that people who didn't fill in the forms properly were doing anything unethical. They just made mistakes. And then there's a much, much more serious issue of people uh, touting for mm. personal benefit. Can for you doing stop their, that? Yes, I think you can by strengthening the law. And this is where the criminal law needs to be strengthened. In 1916, um, there was a lot of suggestions of wartime corruption, uh, people getting wartime contracts corruptly. And they introduced uh, uh, legislation, uh, which is still on the statute book, in respect of certain contracts, that if it, it transpired that you as a public representative were involved in the awarding of a contract and subsequently had any financial dealings with the people uh, who who benefited from that contract, you then had to prove that it wasn't corrupt. It wasn't for the government to prove it was corrupt. In other words, they reversed the burden of proof. Now, it seems to me that something like that could help if, if now that we have all these means of following the money and finding out you know, who got money from what, and if you strengthen the law to allow that to be done, then accompany that with a reversal of the burden of proof and you have a situation where I think people will just not do it. Now, but it, it needs to be done and it needs to be done quickly. It needs to be done quick because, you know, politicians, we had the banking crisis and the way bankers fell out of favour and politicians are constantly getting a rap because this comes on top of the likes of Lowry, Burke, Hawhey and Lawler at national level as well. Names that have brought disrepute to the political game as well. And people, I think, John, I'm listening to people today saying, you know, we've taken a lot of pain in this country in the last number of years to try and get ourselves back on our feet. And here we have this coming up yet again. Well, I think if that legislation reversing the burden of proof were in force, some of those cases uh, could have been brought to a successful conclusion in the courts. Okay. Um, but we don't. We, it was the, that act was passed in 1916 with a very limited effect and it hasn't been extended more generally, as I think it could be. Um, but at the end of the day as well, it does come back to whether people have a sense of right and wrong. Uh, it's you know it's not just a question of avoiding breaking the law or avoiding the embarrassment of appearing in court. It's a question of having a sense in yourself of what's right and wrong and constantly reminding yourself of that, not taking for granted that you will always do the right thing. Because if you don't constantly remind yourself, you may fail to do the right thing on some occasions. Let's turn to the book and faith in politics, it is called, and to talk a little bit more about politics. When you look at the setup in the country here and the nature of politics, and you were 35 years representing me, is it inherently flawed in that, you know, when you're elected, you have to be re-elected and you need to do things on your doorstep that pleases the people who elect you and you have to do the best for that area, maybe at times against the greater good. Well, I think that's a balance that has to be struck all the time. But remember that there will be people representing other constituencies yes. who will be working to ensure that their constituency rather than yours so gets the benefits. So there is mm. there's competition, and that sort of keeps people, you know, reasonably uh, reason, keeps things reasonably balanced. Um, I, I I think. You know, it is understandable that people want to help their own area, and particularly if their own area has, say, been neglected as far as foreign direct investment is concerned, um, they will want things to be done to remedy that. That's nature, and it's natural, and you have to do it anyway. But with an election on the way next year, you see at a 
the government level, forget about the local for a moment, uh, they've guided the ship as best they can through stormy waters and now there's a little bit of give back and there's talk of more give back. Do you need to be careful? You know, I know governments want to be re-elected, but you need to be careful in how much you loosen the purse strings. I think think we do need to be very careful uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, there are some aspects of public expenditure that we seem to be unable to control. We are unable to sort of say, this is what we're going to spend this year and keep to that figure. That's particularly the case in health, where systematically they're getting their estimates wrong. And with the population getting older, more people passing retirement age, you're going to have more call on the health services rather than less. And we need to take account of that. We also uh, need to take account of the fact that if, for example, there was to be a change in corporation tax policy in the United States, in the longer run, that could divert some of the tax that we're receiving here to the United States if they charged a lower rate. And that's another vulnerability uh, that we we, we don't uh, don't control. Um, and also, the third big point is we have very large debts as a country and we, we've, our debts are around 100% of gross domestic product. They should be down at 60% to be stable and s- sustainable. If there were to be, and I don't expect it, but if there were to be an increase in international interest rates or to be an increase in the price of oil, which is exceptionally low at the present time, uh, if either of those things were to change, that would affect uh, revenue quite seriously in Ireland. So I think we need to be we need to be careful and prudent going forward. Let's talk a bit about this coming year, 2016, leading on from what we were talking about a few moments ago. Are we, in essence, when you look at the world, a young state still really just growing up? There are going to be these bumps along the highway of Evolve you know, as the country evolves. Is that part and parcel, what we experienced with the boom, the crash, what's happened subsequently, these scandals we see in politics, you've had them in, you know, other areas, the charities, etc. Is that part of growing up? It is. We are a young state by, you know, we're not, we're, we're I would date the foundation of the state to December 1921, when legally, uh, by virtue of the treaty, the state came into being. Um which makes us, you know, whatever it is, 90, 90, 90 odd years. Yeah, oh, <laughs> <laughs> was never good. Uh, and but you were looking after the Department I know, of I know, I know, it's too shocking, <laughs> isn't it? But um, <laughs> certainly mentally ripping, is very poor. But, but um, we may be a young state, but we are also, uh, I think it's the fifth or sixth oldest continuing democracy in Europe. There's only the UK, Switzerland, I think Iceland and Sweden that are continuous democracies longer than our state is since 1921. Virtually every other state fell into dictatorship of one kind or another in the 20s and 30s, including all the new states that were created after the Treaty of Versailles. One of the reasons why we were able to preserve ourselves as a democracy through the 20s and 30s was that previous to independence, we had had land reform. And we'd create it through land reform, uh, through essentially giving the land back to the people of Ireland. We'd created a stable uh, class of people who wanted stable democracy in Ireland. If we hadn't had 
the land reform, which had been put through by people like uh, John Dillon and Michael Davitt, we might not have been able to preserve our democracy uh, through the 20s and 30s, which was a fantastic achievement, really. And when you look back at those early governments and the sort of legislation that they were able to pass uh, with tiny resources and with everybody outside saying, oh, they're going to fail, the Irish can't govern themselves and all that. We did prove ourselves to be able to govern ourselves. And that is, I think, a credit to Irish politicians, obviously to Irish civil servants as well and to the Irish people, but to Irish politicians. And therefore, we shouldn't, we shouldn't knock politicians as a class. That's, that's what I'm saying, notwithstanding what we may see uh, on, the, on our television screens last night. So what you're saying is that when we reflect from 1621, as you say, really, to today, yes, there are downsides, but there's certainly positives as well. Come back to 16 and the rising and just before that time, 1914 home rule. In this book, you make the point, and I've heard you make it before, you say that home rule would have happened anyway without all that happened around 1916? Yes. Um, well, we'd been fighting for home rule since the 1880s. In other words, to be able to have self-government, pass our own legislation, administer our own, our own affairs in Ireland. That was not achieved by Parnell. It was, but it was achieved on September the 18th, 1914, by John Redmond. Home rule for the first time went on the statute book. And there was no question of it being reversed. Now, there was some question, would it apply to 28 counties or 26 counties, but not necessarily to 32? But, of course, we subsequently haven't got the six counties as part of uh, United Ireland anyway, notwithstanding all the violence that was used subsequently. But home rule was already on the statute book and was not going to be reversed. And in my view, if we'd not had uh, violent rebellion... Home rule would have come into force, I think it would have come into force with a very wide suffrage. In other words, as in 1918, the whole population uh, would have had a vote. And I think that population, which was a bigger electorate than had been in previous elections, would have demanded that we move towards further independence and to complete independence as Canada and Australia have moved without anybody being shot. And, you know, my view was that we lost a huge opportunity uh, in 2014 to commemorate the achievement of Home Rule, getting it on the statute book for the first time. Of course we were going to inevitably have to remember and commemorate the rebellion of 1916. But if we'd also commemorated beside it or before it Home Rule, we would be in a balanced way celebrating the achievement of non-violent politics. Whereas now we run the risk of you know, glorifying uh, violence as what founds our state. Now, when you do a commemoration as a nation, you're essentially talking to yourself. You're saying to yourself, what is is it that's important to us? What defines us? Well, to my mind, if we, you know, use uh, defining, if we define ourselves by virtue of members of the Dublin Metropolitan Police who are being unarmed, being shot, uh, a carter who wouldn't stop at a, a volunteer checkpoint being shot dead. If we put that up on, on a pedestal as what defines us, then I think we're sending ourselves a message that is not the right message for 2016 and the rest of this century. I think we need to be thinking that constitutional politics needs to be celebrated uh, and as well. 
as well. I'm not saying we don't commemorate yes. the heroism and the bravery and the self-sacrifice of the people who were executed and the people who fought subsequently. But we do have to recognise that violence begets violence. The violence of 1916 led on to the violence of 1990-21, which in turn uh, led on to the Civil War. Uh, and once you sort of let the genie out of the bottle, let the violence into the bloodstream of the nation, it's very hard to put it back in again. And uh, that's where I think a mistake was made. John, just to come back on the 1914-16 uh, era, had there been a plebiscite in the whole country, of course, so many counties in the north of Ireland would have vehemently opposed, you know, home rule, breaking away from the mothership in London. The unionists would have defended that with their lives. Oh, I think so. I, I, I don't I don't think uh, if we'd gone on the home rule route and avoided uh, the violence of 1916 to 23, I think we wouldn't have had a 32-county United Ireland. I'm not claiming that. But we would have saved 4,000 lives. Uh, we would have had probably uh, four counties under direct rule from Westminster and the remainder under home rule from Dublin and possibly full independence eventually. Until we moved to full independence, we would still have had some representation from the south of Ireland in Westminster, and they would have been able to take care of ensuring that within the four counties that were not part of the Home Rule Parliament, that there was no discrimination against Catholics. There would have been no Stormont in that scenario, uh, and I think it would have been better that Stormont unfortunately institutionalised discrimination once it was created, and that you know, that, would, that wouldn't have happened if uh, we'd stuck with the Home Rule route, in my, in my opinion. You've lived through the many years later the Anglo-Irish Agreement, and you've seen from close range what happened subsequently and where we are today and in the book you talk about the institutions that are in place you're not a fan of them in the way they're operating at this point in time I think that they were the best possible deal that could be made at the time and I pay unreserved tribute to those who were involved including Bertie Hearn in achieving that I also think that the foundation of the deal uh, arose from the work of Albert Reynolds and and, and, jo and John Major, which I inherited and was able to work on. Um, but I think it's, the deal as it stands is a bit artificial because it requires parties to register as either unionists, in other words, that they're saying never, no never to a united Ireland, or as nationalists, which means that they're saying we want a united Ireland and we want it now sort of thing, or we want it very soon. Two completely irreconcilable positions. So it actually, the law requires them to register in irreconcilable political positions. Now, that, of course, feeds into the the sectarian divisions that there are in parts of Northern Ireland, not in all of it, but particularly in certain urban areas where there are peace walls and so on. In my view, we need to see the development of central politics in Northern Ireland where people will be able to appeal to both communities. That is what we should be having with proportional representation, but it hasn't been allowed to develop. And one of the suggestions I make in the in the book is that instead of um, having to have a majority of the unionists and a majority of the so-called nationalists, that you would say any decision must have 66% support, which would mean in practice that you'd have to have significant unionist and nationalist support because they're, you know, nearest to 50-50 makes no difference. So I think that would be a better approach and would allow more normal politics uh, to develop. Will that happen? 
It might. Uh, it would require a change in the legislation. It would require the agreement of all the parties. Uh, I don't think it would happen quickly. Uh, but I do think we're not, you know, we're not getting the full potential of the of, 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 of the institutions at the present time because of the artificiality of as described. The EU and the European project has certainly come under stress, and it's a, an area you address in the book as well. The euro, you know, twenty eight you know, disparate nations all together under the one umbrella. It ain't working. It's, it's, it's fractured. Look at Greece. Look at Portugal. What happened in Ireland? Bit of a mess. It's an imperfect political institution, but it's certainly better than competitive devaluations between countries like as we had in the 1930s and the sort of conflicts, uh, economic conflicts in the early 30s that led eventually to war in the late 30s. I think the present situation where you have a single currency uh, for most of Europe, uh, you have monetary stability, you have problems in individual countries, but the Greeks are getting on top of those problems, slowly but surely. Uh, We've clearly got on top of our problems. The, the European Union and the Euro is not a perfect project and certainly there were huge gaps in the design of the Euro when it was being put in place. We didn't take proper account of the need to supervise banks, which in a way was an obvious thing because most of the money we use on a daily basis is actually bank credit. Um, how you could have a single money for all of Europe and not have a single banking supervision system for all of Europe was, you know, it was a an obvious uh, omission in the original design. But we are, we are, we have put that right now, not completely, but we've put it right to a great extent. And I think we've a lot of, a lot of work to do. And I develop, I develop all these themes in the book. And the Turkish application is an interesting one. Would you be pro bringing them on board or do you see that as a big issue for the we, EU? We have set out uh, in the so-called Copenhagen criteria for and I can't remember them all offhand, four rules that must be applied. There must be a functioning democracy. There must be human rights. There must be no discrimination. Now, on the second and third of those, I don't think Turkey qualifies. And I think it's wrong to be extending membership application to people for political reasons. We were mistaken in taking Greece in so soon uh, when we did. And that is a problem we're now ruining. I think just because we want the Turks to do something about migration is not a reason for offering them a prospect uh, of membership, unless and until they fulfil the Copenhagen criteria. What about the UK? Because that's the, the bogeyman in the room at the moment, this referendum. And the British people will have the opportunity to say yes or no. If they went, the implications just for our biggest trading partner, for us, well, uh, the the implications for the this part of the country, uh, for the p- listeners of LMFM, would be uh, horrendous. You have the possibility that customs posts and even passport controls might have to be re- have to be introduced along the border, which would disrupt completely the economic development of of you know, all of this region, but of the whole country, north and south, and. Uh, also, it would do huge damage to the European Union because we need Britain in the European Union. Br- the British bring pragmatism 
and sort of realism to a lot of the discussions that take place in Europe when they are engaged. Unfortunately, for the last five years, they've been sort of disengaged, they've not been bothering to take an interest in European affairs. And then they're surprised that things are happening that they don't like. Well, if you want, if you're in a club with 28 members, you can't expect to get your own way all the time. You've got to work with the other 27 people and try and get them to see things your way and you'll win mo- maybe most of the time and lose some of the time and you've got to take the rough with the smooth. But Britain hasn't been doing that. They see Europe as something out there, something other than themselves that they're not in. Well, Britain in fact has been in the European Union for far more than most of the EU, far longer than most of the EU countries themselves have been in it. And yet they, they regard it as something other, as if it's not to, in, nothing to do with them and that they're not responsible for things that they don't like. They were the ones that wanted all this enlargement. Remember, the people who were pushing for Poland and Lithuania to come into the European Union were the British. The people who said, well, they can, British, uh, Polish and, and uh, workers from Eastern Europe can work immediately. We're not going to use the eight-year uh, postponement period. The people who decided that were the British, not the European un, Europeans. Uh, in in Brussels. So um, they have created this situation for themselves and now they're you know, looking for someone else to solve it for them. Watch this space. A big year on that one coming up in 2016. John Bruton's my special guest. We are going to talk more after news and weather too. Former theatre John Bruton is with me. His new book is called Faith in Politics. You wouldn't think it today, but that is the name of the book. It's available in all bookshops right around the country. And you're signing locally. Where? Yeah, we've a, a book signing in Easton's uh, in Navin uh, tomorrow evening at 6.30 and everybody is welcome to come along. I, that, that's the end of the commercial, but I, I, I'll try and fit it in again later if I get a chance. I'll afford 6.30 to tomorrow night in Easton's. In Navin and you can meet the man himself. Some comments from listeners if you'd care to deal with them. Jerry, tell John what's bothering the Brits is Germany, their old foe, is the powerhouse of Europe once again and Britain's empire and power are gone. They despise the Germans, says Ollie and RD. Would you agree, John Bruton? I don't know that they despise the Germans, but they do fear them for historical reasons. Um, And I think in a way also, in the absence of an empire, English nationalism is re-emerging. And that is taking its form of being against Europe. Nationalism usually is against something. And English nationalism seems to be against the EU as its way of defining itself, which is a pity. (coughs) John Bruton is right, Jerry. Canada and Australia got independence without the loss of life. Nice to hear John, says Peter from Drogheda. Another Peter with a question for you. Jerry, will you ask John, uh, who do they think they're fooling when our corporation tax is supposed to be 12.5% when in reality most of these foreign corporations are only paying less than 1%? That's why all the American multinationals have their headquarters here and our government is letting them off scot-free. I, I don't. There may be some exceptions that are paying as little as that, but the majority of these companies are paying the 12.5% because there are no special deals in the Irish tax code, whereas there have been special deals in the tax codes of other European uh, countries. So I, th- I think the statement is a, a bit exaggerated. A bit wild, Peter. If you'd like to comment, uh, make a comment to John or remark, 53958 is the text number. Here's something I picked for the book, and this really got me thinking as I read it. And I want to say to you, I really enjoyed the book, John. It's thought-provoking, and really, to take it on board, I'm going to have to reread it to make sure I have everything in. But... You, we hate losing a hundred euro. You say in the book more than winning a hundred. Where do you draw that from? And when I thought about it, you know what? You're right. 
this is in a way why people once they get money they become extremely anxious because they're afraid they're going to lose it whereas sometimes people who have relatively less are can lead sometimes a happier life because they're not worried about what they might be going to to lose um this is an insight that has come from what the new science of behavioral economics they have asked people what they think and what it tells us is that the the idea of a totally free market always getting the right outcome isn't correct because once people get money, they w- they'll stop taking risks uh, that they should be taking and maybe, or, or alternatively, they think they can t- get money an easier way. So the more we have, the more we worry, the more we fret, we're better off, we're capitalists, the majority of us in this part of the world. And yet are you saying we were happier when we had less? Well... I think there is some uh, evidence as well that having to make too many choices in life makes one anxious. Uh, there's a book by a guy called Schwartz called The Paradox of Choice. And you know the modern economy is designed to offer people absolutely limitless choice. If you go into a fast food restaurant now, you're asked five different sauces that you can have with your... You know, it takes nearly longer to order the hamburger than it takes to eat it. Uh, but... <laughs> All this choice actually doesn't necessarily make people content. That seems to be the case. Mm. Now, I'm not quite sure what conclusions one can draw from this, but but this seems to be true. Back to uh, politics and world politics. The festering sore, that's the Middle East. Palestine, Israel at the heart of everything besides all else that's happened around them. Why, why, why can no one grasp this nettle and sort it out? Well, we have the uh, a principle of a solution, which is the so- supposed two-state solution, where Israel would keep, um, I think it's something around 80% of the territory of former Palestine, and on the remaining 20%, a Palestinian state, an unarmed, neutral Palestinian state would be created. That's the two-state solution. Unfortunately, Israeli settlers are going in and settling on the 20%, leaving no space for the Palestinians to create the state. Meanwhile, the United States is financially, uh, very generously financially aiding Israel. And the European Union is sort of paying money to keep the Palestinian entity in existence, but with no prospect of that Palestinian entity becoming a full state. And that, naturally enough, has fueled uh, resentment, not only among the Palestinians themselves, but also among among other, other Arab peoples. Uh, remember that at the, the time of the First World War, Palestine was part of what was known as Greater Syria, which included present-day Syria and Iraq and Jordan. It was a great territory that was administered by the Ottoman Turks, but it was an Arab territory, Arab-speaking territory, and it sort of aspired to a sort of natural unity. Well, it didn't get that because the French and the British came in and they divided it up up between them. And naturally enough, many people in that part of the world resent this. The the key to my mind to successful um, international politics is not understanding the grievances of your own people, but putting yourself in the shoes of your would-be antagonist and understanding how he feels or he, she feels and how the people he or she has to go back to to explain what they've done will feel about what you are asking him or her to agree to. That's the sort of secret. And I I do think that John Kerry 
uh, the Secretary of State uh, in, in the United States, has made a really big effort to resolve the problem. But he's got virtually nowhere because um, Mr Netanyahu is not prepared to cooperate. Mm. It's a, it's a festering sore that goes on and on and look what it's spawned in a way with ISIS and what's happening with them. You mention a book in, in your book or a number of books that you, you've been talking about, but one of them in particular I was looking at um, and it just really resonates at this time. Sleepwalking into war 1914. Could we be sleepwalking into something right now? Look what happened with Turkey and Russia just a few days ago. Well... The reason the First World War took place was that the countries of Europe at that time had formed themselves into two alliances. The purposes of these alliances was to prevent war, to give the countries security by mutually guaranteeing one another. But unfortunately, once war actually began to break out between Austria and and, and Serbia, these two blocks collided and we had a war. Now, At the moment, we're fortunate in the sense that the European Union and NATO uh, encompass most of Europe, uh, or even potentially, in the case of Turkey, it's in NATO. But there's one big exception, Russia. Russia has, when the Berlin Wall originally fell, there was the possibility that Russia could have been incorporated in some fashion into the NATO structures. even perhaps Russia could have become a member of the European Union at some stage in the future. But that just didn't happen. Uh, and the Russians feel sort of let down about that. And they're, you know, very assertive. Uh, uh, they feel that they need to assert themselves physically. And they're doing that in Syria with fatal consequences for one of their pilots recently. Uh, they did it in Crimea, which has resulted in, you know, disaster for the people of Crimea and um, sanctions being imposed against Russia itself and uh, you know, unnatural uh, interruption of trade occurring because of what the Russians are doing to assert themselves. I, I don't know. I don't know, Mr. Putin. I don't know whether it's possible to do a deal with him, but it seems to me that a, a structure of peace for all of Europe, including Russia, is something that we, we need to be working on. Uh, and uh, the idea that that idea, of course, is difficult to sell in countries that were until relatively recently occupied by Russia or had th- their political system was oppressed by Russia. The countries of Central and Eastern Europe who are in the European Union today, the idea of doing any business with the Russians is anathema to them because of their previous experiences. And, you know, they would have to be brought along to to any solution that we would find we might find. But I think we need to work hard on this because peace is not guaranteed. The, you know, the idea that everything will be the same five years from now as it is today, that's mythical. The environment you touch on as well. Does anyone give a damn, John? Sure, you know, America wants to do this, born all it wants to born, you know, get its quotas, keep that going. We had Paris just last week and an agreement of sorts signed is the planet in trouble? You're a man that's travelled the world. You've engaged with many governments. Yes, I, I think that the approach that's been taken to the conference in Paris is better than the previous one because it's asking each country not to to be bound by rules laid down by other people, but to say what they're going to do themselves. and so the, And then to be held to what they have themselves volunteered to do. 
And that may lead to sort of building from the bottom up towards uh, something that works. But you know, we are a long way from resolving this problem. Um, and I, I, if you look, one of the biggest victims of climate change obviously will be the poorest countries in the world, people who made no contribution to it. But another big uh, victim of climate change will be anybody living on the east coast of the United States. If you visit the east coast of the United States, you'll see large parts of it are only two or three feet above sea level. Uh, and huge, really valuable properties and large numbers of people living just above sea level. If the sea level were to rise because of global warming melting the Arctic ice cap, that would have a devastating effect in the United States. And yet, um, the people who are making the big decisions in the United States, uh, in Congress at least, don't seem to see this. See this it's risk. It's a real worry, isn't it? It, it is. is. It, it is, and, and uh, obviously we've our, we've got to make our contribution too in this country. It's not going to be easy. Even though we're regarded as the green man of Europe, uh-huh. you're back home in Dunboyne just to, to leave the book. And uh, you know you've been all over. You've been ambassador to the USA, Taoiseach of the country, leader of Fine Gael in Europe. Do you miss it? Oh, no, I don't really. I mean, I, 35 years was fantastic in politics. I really, I, I enjoyed. I enjoyed the social side of politics, um, getting to know people all over County Meath and Westmeath and Kildare at different times. Um, I enjoyed all that. I didn't so much enjoy the doll. The doll had become a place where people read speeches with nobody listening uh, and were wait, queuing up to get in to speak, to, to read something that maybe someone else had written and was had become quite boring. Whereas the, the sort of... Constituency politics uh, is uh, re- remains fascinating and very interesting. Um, no, I don't. I mean, I'm I'm very happy that I'm you know I'm able to do different things. I'm involved with you know one company that's uh, trying to create venture capital opportunities for s- small startups here and in America. Uh, another company that's trying to attract funds to refurbish hotels in Ireland. And I'm on the board of uh, Ingersoll Rand, which is a, has a major plant in Galway and which is headquartered in Swords. So, I mean, I've, I'm, I'm quite busy and then I'm writing occasionally. I write something nearly every week, mm. whether it's good or bad. And, and that's where this book is drawn yeah. from, 2009, your writings that you have right up to the, the present date. I want to say again, I really enjoyed it. Thanks very I really much, did. I recommend it. It's a great book, uh, Faith in Politics by John Bruton. And he is signing in Navin, in Eason's. Yes, 6.30. Tomorrow <laughs> night. Don't miss him. And you can have your yeah. speak with him yourself at that stage. Last question before you go. You said you're not good at predicting elections. Well, we're going to have an election very, very soon. There's no time now. It's going to happen. And there's no uh, wriggling out of this one. <laughs> what, what's going to happen? Uh, I think, well, I'm going to not take a big risk in saying I don't think any one party will get an overall majority. I think there's a strong possibility that we may have a minority government, whether a two-party minority government or a one-party minority government. But I think um, it's quite possible for minority governments to function very well, particularly with the new budgetary procedures where one is supposed to produce a draft budget in October, which is not finalised till December. That's an EU requirement now. That leaves two months for a minority government which produces this budget to negotiate with the opposition and change the budget within its overall parameters so as to give the opposition or some of the opposition parties an input to the budget. In other words, we would have real politics 
the doll actually making the budget rather than bringing down governments over the budget, the doll actually making the budget. And I think that would be a huge advance for politics in Ireland. And I think that's now possible. And it means that a minority government and I think some of the best governments we've had have been minority governments. Sean Lamas led a very good minority government in the 60s. I think the government of 1981 to 82, uh, which I was Minister of Finance in, was a very, very good government, even, and, uh, even though it was, as we all know, a minority government. Mm. So there you have it. You heard from the man himself. Faith in politics, John Bruton. John, thank you so much for dropping in for chat on Late Lunch thank today. You thank much. you. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors Drogheda, your local... Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.